Good morning. We are so glad that you are here with us uh, and that we have this time together to join around the Word of God and worship together and, and join together in prayer as well. Um, we have been in this series in First Peter, and Peter is writing to this group of people that he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. They're people who are not living in their own country. They've been dispersed because of persecution. And Peter calls them elect. They've been chosen. They've been foreknown by God. In other words, he's got them in his hand. He's taking care of them. He knows them. They're in his hands. And Peter writes, we, we saw two weeks ago, we saw that Peter writes to them in the first half of chapter one of his epistle about this great salvation they have received through Jesus Christ. And this salvation has three aspects that we looked at. The first is the idea of the blessing of salvation, which is a living hope and an inheritance that's, that, that's protected, it's guarded in heaven for us. It's a living hope that's active now, though. And the second aspect was the glory of salvation, which is this genuine faith that's been given to us. It was a gift, the gift of God. And, and the beautiful thing about it is that God refines it in this life through affliction, through trials, in a way that is going to result in our glory when Jesus comes back and in his glory ultimately. The blessing of salvation, the glory of salvation. And then the third aspect was the, the mystery of salvation, which is the grace which we have received, which we've been given, and in which we now stand. We have this marvelous grace. We've given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. The mystery of salvation. And so Peter continues in chapter 1. He continues in verse 13, and which is where we're going to pick up. And he says, therefore, in other words, Based on, in light of everything we've just said about this great salvation you have received, do this. And here's what he says. He says, therefore set your minds, sorry, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope. It's a very intentional, conscious thing to do. Set your hope. On what? On this future thing. The moment when this grace will be brought to you when Jesus comes back, when he's revealed again for the second time. Set your hope on that future event. What's the grace that's going to be brought to us? Well, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fight the final battle and he's going to win. And evil and sin will be defeated forever. Done. All things will be made new. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. We're going to get new bodies like Jesus himself has, like he had after he rose from the dead. I'm looking forward to that. Some of you are looking forward to that as well. Therefore, says Peter, set your hope on that grace, that future grace that is going to become. Because we live in a time when some of the blessings of salvation, we have them already, but some of them are not yet. And we live in that tension. Peter tells us two ways in which we should set our, uh, set our hope. He tells us how to do it. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Literally, preparing your mind for action means gird your mind for action. It's the picture of, of someone who, 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 who zips up their, 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 their coat and tightens their belt so that they can run fast and not be impeded by their clothing. 
And he says, be sober minded. It's the picture of a soldier who's ready for battle. All of his equipment's in place. He's girded up. He's tightened everything. It's not going to stop him from moving. And he's, he's mentally awake and ready to go. Ready for whatever comes at him. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober minded. Be awake. Be ready. And with that outlook, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like now? How can we know that our hope is really set on that future event? Well, Peter's going to go on in the rest of the text, the text and he's going to give us four ways, four, four commands that we should be doing Four commands that the person who has really set their hope on that grace, this is what it looks like in their lives. And the, in, in future weeks, in coming weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna, Peter's gonna detail and apply these ideas to specific situations. But right now he gives us the big commands, the big ideas. And we're gonna look at those together this morning, the four of them. This is what it looks like to be faithful in exile. The first thing is found in verse 15. Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. You see, God is holy. God is holy in the sense that he's set apart. He's other. He's different from all of his creation. He's not like his creation. He's different than that. He's holy. He's set apart. And we, like God, are, are meant to be holy. That's the first reason that Peter gives about why we ought to be holy. Because God himself is holy. We are meant to be set apart as his people. We're meant to be set apart from what? From other humans. We're set apart. We're called out. That's what the church, the body of Christ, is called in the New, in the New Testament. In Greek, we're called the ecclesia. Ones who have been called out. We're meant to be set apart. Because God himself is set apart. And Peter quotes, he says in verse 14, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Sorry, verse 16, he says that. You shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting from Leviticus in chapter 11 and verse 44, where God says the same thing to the people of Israel. And Leviticus is a book where he gives them all of these rules and regulations about what they can eat, how they should worship him, how should they, they should conduct themselves in relationships. And it's all so that they will look different than other nations, so that they're set apart. And so because God is the same God as he was then, as he is now, he still calls his people to be holy like he is holy. That's the first reason that Peter gives about why we should be holy in all of our conduct. The second reason is found in verse 14. Peter says, as obedient children, be like God, be holy like God is holy. We need to be holy like God is holy because we are obedient children. We're his children. He is our father. And we're going to get into more into that in the next command. But he's our father. Remember, we've been born again with a living hope, with an inheritance, we're co-heirs with Christ, we're his children. And so we need to be like our father, as obedient children, not just children, not wayward children, obedient children, children who want to honor their heavenly father. Peter has a little phrase in there. He says, 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. So there's a sense of turning away from something in our former life towards being like who God is. Being holy. There's growth there. Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse, verses 14, sorry, in chapter 14 of verse 20, he says, be as children to evil, but be adults in your thinking. And he says something really similar in Romans chapters 1 and chapter 16. He says, be wise in what is good and be innocent in what is evil. There's this idea of growing up, growing wise in good and growing innocent in regards to what is evil. Remember, Peter's writing to exiles, and that's the best illustration, I think, of what it means to be set apart, to be holy. If you've ever been to a foreign country, you, you get off the plane, you get out of your car, and you start to walk around, and you realize that the people there, they're different than you. Sometimes it's really obvious. Maybe they look different. They sound different. They speak a different language. Maybe you speak the same language, but you have an accent like me. And as you get in there, you start to realize that you're actually operating according to different wisdoms. And the longer you live there, maybe you live there as an exile, you've immigrated, and you live there permanently, and you still operate according to the wisdom of your home culture on some level. And that makes you different. And in many ways, you don't understand or you don't know, you don't have the, the, the cultural baggage to understand your host culture and so you're innocent to that culture. You're wise in terms of your home culture, and you're innocent in terms of your host culture. And that's what Peter is saying when he says, be holy like God is holy. We need to operate in terms of the wisdom of heaven that comes down from above, to paraphrase James. And we need to be innocent in terms of the culture of earth, in terms of earthly wisdom. Where do you, this morning, need to be more innocent in terms of evil, in terms of earthly wisdom? And where do you need to be more wise in terms of what is good, in terms of the wisdom that comes from above? Because remember, we are exiles. We are children of God, citizens of heaven. We need to operate according to that wisdom of our home, our true home. Be holy in all your conduct. The second command that Peter gives us in verse 17, he says, he, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with reverence. And again, he gives us two reasons why we need to do this. Conduct yourselves with reverence. The first is because we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. He says in verse 19, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And he gives us two reasons why it's precious. The first is because the, because Christ was like a lamb without blemish or spot. He's precious because he's perfect. He's the only perfect man. He was both God and both, and man, fully God, fully man, perfect, without sin. And that meant he was able to take our place on the cross for our sin. And he's the only one. He's uniquely equipped, able to take our spot. He's incredibly rare in that sense. And that makes him precious. He's priceless. The second reason 
that he's precious, that his blood is precious. Peter says in verse 20 that he was, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made, mes- made manifest in the last times for our sake. What he's saying is, this was God's plan. God planned this. He foreknew it. Jesus accomplished it. The Spirit applies it to us now. This work of salvation is God's masterpiece. It's a work of art. And it's beautiful to behold. And just like a physical masterpiece of art, it's priceless. It's precious. There's only one copy of it. It's precious because it's rare. It's precious because it's a masterpiece. We have been saved, ransomed, bought back from the marketplace of evil by the precious blood of Christ. That's the first reason why he says, conduct yourselves with fear. In other words, don't take your salvation for granted. The second reason that he gives is because we are children of the Father. We call on our, 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 our on God, who is our Father. We call on Him as Abba, says Romans chapter 8, as Daddy by the Spirit, who His Spirit who indwells us. He loves us dearly, but He's also the one who judges impartially. We're accountable to Him. We're accountable to Him. The book of Hebrews and Proverbs as well says actually he disciplines us. There's accountability there because he loves us. There's no tension there for Peter between the idea that God is our father who loves us and that we're accountable to him as well. And that's why we need to conduct ourselves with reverence, with fear. The best example that I know about this, some of you probably know this reference as well. I've been reading from the Chronicles of Narnia with my children, and Aslan is the best example of what it means to conduct yourselves with reverence. Because every time someone, especially the human children, they engage Aslan, they meet him, there's this mixture of joy and trust and love in the sense that everything's right in the world when he's near, but also of reverence because he's a lion and he's, he's big. He's dangerous. And it's summed up in this, this conversation that the four children, the Pevensey children, have with the beavers in the beavers, the beavers' home when they first arrive in Narnia. And I think it's Susan who says, she finds out that he's a lion and she says, but, but he's, he's safe, isn't he? And Mr. Beavers, he sputters and he says, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. And that's that sense of reverence. He's dangerous. Thank goodness he's dangerous because he can take care of evil and defeat it. But he's good. He's loving. We can trust him. God is our father. And we're accountable to him as well. But he loves us. He loves you. And he loves me. Some of you who are parents might know that there's a really good test to, to see whether your children have got what you're trying to teach them at home. It's when you, t- you see them outside of the home and you start to see actually they have or they haven't got what we are trying to teach them at home. That's a little bit of what Peter is saying here. He says, conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence throughout the time of your exile. You're not at home, but conduct yourselves as though you were at home and God is present, your father. Because the temptation, of course, when we're not at home, is that we allow the surrounding culture to become the measure of our conduct. Peer pressure. 
And Peter says, no, you're in exile. Conduct yourselves with reverence because you want to honor your father who is in heaven. And the reality is that Jesus, in holiness and in reverential living, is our example. He was perfect. He was perfect like his heavenly father is perfect. He conducted himself with reverence. He was the obedient child by excellence, par excellence. Obedience even unto the cross. And we know what Jesus looks like because we see him in the scriptures. That's why at City Church, we're, we're Christ-centered because he's our example. And we want to be shaped by scripture. Because this is the primary source where we find out who Jesus is, what he was like, and that we can know him. And we want to be shaped because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be shaped by scripture. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Do you have irreverence in your life? Are there areas where you don't honor God in your conduct? That's the question that's being asked here. The third, the third command that Peter gives us is found in verse 22. And, and Peter says, love one another earnestly from a, a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he gives us again two reasons why we need to do this. Why this is what the, having our hope set fully on the grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this looks like. The first reason, he says in the beginning of verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, he's saying your souls have been purified by what? By, by your obedience to the truth. Paul talks about this idea of the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Faith to what? The truth. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus has purified your souls. And he says, you've been purified for something, for a sincere brotherly love. That's phileo love in Greek. Brotherly love, the love of family. And in Jesus, we've been united. We have a common purpose, a common vision. We have, we're, we're part of the same family. We have that love of striving in the same direction with a common vision, a common purpose. And so Paul says, Love one another earnestly because you've been saved for that kind of fellowship and community together. But the second reason that he gives is because in the second part of verse 22, sorry, verse 23, he says, love one another, love one another, excuse me, love one another earnestly from a pure heart because you have been born again. Remember, we've been born again to a living hope, according to God's great mercy, to his, his plan. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. What he's saying is, you've been born again, and you've got God's seed that abides in you. And there's two particular aspects about that that mean we ought to love one another earnestly. The first is that we've been born through the living and abiding word of God. The word, that's logos, that's Jesus. That's the gospel, he says in verse 25. Jesus is the gospel. And the gospel is about Jesus dying at the cross. That is the epitome of what God's love looks like. 
Because God is love. And that's the prime example of his love, is Jesus dying on the cross. And we were born through that. We were born out of God's love. So we need to love one another. The second part of that new birth is that it is not perishable, but imperishable. It's eternal. It doesn't change. It's not going to be, it's not going to fail. It's not going to stop. It's not going to be proved wrong. Because let's be honest, brotherly love, and and the second word that Peter uses is agape love, self-sacrificing love. That kind of love for one another is dangerous. It's not an easy way to live. It's not a popular way to live in our culture, in the world. It's dangerous. And if this life were all there was, we would, be, we would in a sense be right in not loving one another, but in looking out for ourselves. But Peter says, no. No, no, no. There's another life. This is an eternal seed. You're living for more than just this life. You're living for God's glory for one another. So love one another earnestly because, hey, we have to live with one another for the rest of eternity. We can start now. We can practice now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to love one another earnestly is the third thing. The fourth, not yet, not the fourth thing, because Peter continues in verse 24 and he has this marvelous quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And he says, all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah is writing in Isaiah chapter 40 for the benefit of the people of Israel in the future, once they've been exiled, to be able to look back and read what he's written. And the whole chapter is about God's sovereignty. And he's saying, look, you're in exile, but God promised he would bring you back. And he will because his word lasts forever. And he's writing to exiles, just like Peter is writing to exiles. You can live your life by this standard of God's word because it will not fail. It's not going to happen. Love one another earnestly. The fourth thing that Peter says in verse in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, put away these things, these sinful things. And then he says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk of the word. Long for it. Crave it. He says, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These are things that are the opposite of that, that phileo, that brotherly love and that agape, that self-sacrificing love. Malice, the love of evil things. Deceit, not lying, but still stretching the truth, twisting it. Envy, wanting what others have. Slander, talking ill of one another. It's the opposite of brotherly love. Peter says, put those things away. Don't dilute this, the pure spiritual milk with them. Put them to death. Get rid of them and crave the pure spiritual milk. That's what John says. The apostle John says in his first epistle in chapter three and verse nine, he says that no one who's been born again keeps on sinning, makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. If you have been really, truly born again, you can't make a practice of sinning. You make a practice of doing what is good, of growing wise in terms of what is good. Being children to what is evil. Why? Why do we need to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word? Because that's how we grow. 
That's how we grow. There ought to be growth, development, change in your spiritual life. Just as it's possible to be a 40-year-old man who has the maturity of a 15-year-old. used to be 30 was the new 20. Now it's 40 is the new 20. It's something I, I don't know. We glory in immaturity sometimes. It's possible to be a 40-year-old follower of Jesus and be, but have the spiritual maturity of a 15-year-old. There ought to be growth in your life. That's why sometimes we ask the question, what has God been doing in your life? What have you been learning over the last year, six months, last month, maybe even the last week? How has the Spirit been at work in your life, sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus? Where's that change happening? It's worth asking yourself those questions. If you journal, as you pray, as you have your devotional time, what has the Lord been doing in my life? Where is he working so that I can get on board with it? There ought to be growth. And Peter ends with this great phrase in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's quoting from Psalm 34 from David who says, taste and see. It's the language of our senses. It's, and, and the truth here, what Peter is conveying is that our faith is not just a set of nice ideas. It's not just a good set of theories. We ought to experience Jesus here and now. It ought to change you. You can know him personally and have a relationship with him. It's a really good test of whether you were actually kept, guarded, saved by him. Have you tasted and seen his goodness in your life? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you long to know that goodness. You can find it in Jesus. Crave, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. As we close couple of questions for you to reflect on. The first is this idea that Jesus is the embodiment of all of these things we talked about. He is holy. He is reverent toward his, his father. He is the obedient son who, who honors and brings glory to his father. He loves his brothers earnestly. In fact, he died for us. And he is the picture of what it means to be mature in our faith. That's why we want to be transformed in the, to his image, to be like him. And hallelujah that we have the scriptures, we have the spirit in us that teaches us and empowers us to be able to do that. And so my question for you is this, are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you being holy? Are you honoring God with the way you live, how you talk, what you say, what you do, what you think? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's easy to say. It's harder to do. Because we're still people. I'm not perfect. I don't think you're perfect. Maybe you are. Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you growing in your faith? Friend, maybe you are someone who... You don't know per Jesus personally yet. You're still considering him. Perhaps in these days of COVID, of, of lockdown, 
and there's an emptiness in your life that you can't hide anymore. Sometimes busyness, we're really good at using busyness to hide those things. But do you long for goodness? Is there a deep craving that nothing you can find satisfies? You've tried it all. It doesn't satisfy. Can I suggest to you that only Jesus can satisfy that craving? And you were made that way. The French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal talked about what has become has come to be called the God-shaped vacuum in our souls. He wrote this. He said, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once a man in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace of vacuum. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking him in, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though nothing can help him. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, unchanging, in other words, by God himself, and I would add, through Jesus Christ, his Son, and his Spirit, which dwells inside of us. Thank you.